Father, it is such a blessing to have the benefit of the body of Christ, and I thank you for that. And I pray that we will always appreciate what you have given us in this family of God that we have become a part of by faith. Thank you, Lord, that we have the blessing of encouragement of those who serve us, of those who pray for us, of those who encourage us, of those who lead and teach us and shepherd us, and those who model Christ for us. Father, I thank you that when we come, we come for those reasons and not for the the guilt of missing or for the obligation to be here because that's what we've been told. Those are things that some know and some feel the burden of, but we don't. We know only the joy of being in the body and of celebrating our faith and of looking forward to the day we will stand before the Lord face to face. And in the meantime, we study, we learn, we consider, we apply, we live out what your word gives us. And this morning, as we study in the life of Joseph, Father, I pray that his testimony as a man who obeyed despite circumstances that were difficult would be a testimony we could emulate in our own walk. Give us insight with understanding, strength with courage. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we were in the midst of watching Joseph interpreting the dreams of the two royal prisoners. Remember these guys? The two men that Joseph was accompanied by in the prison, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Both men had been accused of something worthy of death. Perhaps they were suspected of trying to kill Pharaoh. We don't know, but... We do know that they are in desperate straits and their fate lies in the balance. We're not sure whether they will live or die. And as it turns out, the Lord has given each of these men a dream which foretells their destinies. We know God works through dreams. We know that God has revealed himself to men in the past chapters of Genesis through dreams. And occasionally he will obscure the meaning of the dream so that the person who receives it cannot understand it themselves. And, of course, the Lord does this so that that person might seek out someone whom the Lord has appointed to reveal that truth. And in this case, the Lord has given Joseph the ability to interpret these dreams. Remember last week we said interpreting dreams is a relatively unique and rare skill in Scripture. We only know of two men in all the Bible who were given the gift to interpret other men's dreams. One is Joseph, of course, and the other was Daniel. Many people in the Bible receive dreams, though, and many people can interpret their own dreams as God permits, or at least they think they can. The thing with dreams, though, is that interpretations don't always come out the way we might have preferred or the way we may have desired. There was a story recently of an international incident in which the president of Iran came to the United States to speak at the United Nations. He was in New York. And before he was scheduled to speak, the president met with our U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and he told her, that I had this incredible dream last night in which I could see all of America, all of America's cities, beautiful. And on the top of every building in every city, there was this flag. And on the flags was written, Allah is God and God is Allah. And the ambassador remarked in reply, he said, you know, Mr. President, that is a remarkable dream. Because last night I had a dream also. And in my dream, I could see all of Tehran and Tehran had a beautiful gleaming skyline as well with many buildings. And on top of every building, there was also a flag. And on every flag, there was something written. So the Iranian president says, well, tell me what was written on all the flags. And she said, well, I really don't know because I can't read Hebrew. (laughs) So the interpretation of dreams 
may not come out in the way you'd like. And that's the case here for the second prisoner. The cup bearer has already been given his interpretation, that positive one. And now it's time for the baker. That's where we left off. Verse 16. So go with me there. Chapter 40, verse 16. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked foods for Pharaoh and the birds were eating them out of the basket on his head. Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh off you. Well, thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot. Well, last week, you remember, we learned that the cupbearer's dream foretold his release and his restoration to serving Pharaoh. And that gave Joseph reason to hope because he then assumed that this cupbearer might remember Joseph for his kindness and for having given this positive interpretation. And he asks the cupbearer, would you please make my case to Pharaoh for me when you are restored to your position? And as we just read, he forgot. But then there's still the matter of the baker's dream, which we now focus on. And as we read, the baker's dream foretells a very different outcome for him. No doubt a disappointing one for him. The baker, it says, will not be released. The baker's dream has in it birds, birds devouring bread, even before the bread reaches Pharaoh. Now, in Egypt, birds were viewed as spiritual creatures. And for that matter, a huge number of animals were perceived as being gods or goddesses in Egyptian pantheon. But birds in particular were protected because they were seen to be spiritual creatures. So they were frequent nuisances within the nation of Egypt. Scenes like this would have been common. Bakers would have often had to beat birds away from their breads. And so the baker's responsibility was, at least in part, to do this, to protect the food and make sure it was undefiled as it reached Pharaoh's table. In the dream, the baker's failure to keep the food safe may have been related to the issue that put him in jail in the first place. In other words, the birds picking at the bread was symbolic, perhaps, of the way Pharaoh had perceived the baker to not be protecting the food chain, which would have been his responsibility. So by this imagery, the dream confirms that this man will find his way to the gallows. He will be hanged. He'll be impaled later, it says, on a tree to be eaten by birds. Now, Egyptians thought that this kind of a death was actually the worst possible fate for an individual because without the body left intact, their understanding of death meant that the person could not proceed into the afterlife in a happy and whole way. So they would do this to their worst enemies. That's the baker's future. There is an interesting play on words, by the way, in Joseph's statements about this case and about the two men in general. In the case of the cupbearer, Joseph says the Pharaoh would lift up the man's head, meaning he would restore him to the position of high power. And then a similar phrase in Hebrew is used concerning the baker. But here Joseph says the Pharaoh will lift off his head, meaning his head is taken off in the course of the hanging. 
If you remember last week, I alluded to the fact that there was a picture of Christ found in this passage of Joseph. You know from the earlier weeks we've been studying that Joseph is a picture of Christ in many ways, maybe even countless ways. But here's another one of those opportunities. We said that this whole scene of Joseph in the prison with these two other men evokes a picture of things that we know come later in the life of Jesus. The picture began with the observation that these days in the prison represent the lowest point in Joseph's life. This is the greatest test he will face after having been sold into slavery and then made a slave and then from slavery now into prison. This represents the bottom, if you will, for him. This is also the trial that proves Joseph's worthiness to be elevated, in which despite all his circumstances, his obedience, his diligence is unchallenged. And then we said, if you take that period of Joseph's life and you compare it to Jesus's life, knowing that Joseph is a picture of Jesus, then you would find a parallel to the time Jesus spent hanging on the cross and entering the grave. Clearly, that would have been Jesus's darkest moments in ministry, the point at which Jesus accepted the sin of the world upon his shoulders and he felt the sting of death in a most cruel way. And perhaps most importantly, he suffered separation from the father for the first time ever. And if you remember that moment on the cross, then you also remember that Jesus wasn't alone when he was there, was he? On either side of him, there were two other condemned men hanging on their own crosses. The two thieves who happened to find themselves crucified on either side of the Lord of the universe. Those two men were represented prophetically by the baker and the cupbearer. Remember those two thieves? They demonstrated two very different responses to Jesus and to the predicament that they found themselves in and to the predicament Jesus found himself in. Remember? The first thief mocked Jesus. He challenged Jesus that, well, if you're truly the Messiah, then why don't you get yourself off that cross and save us while you're at it? How could Jesus call himself the savior of Israel if he couldn't even save himself? And then, without a doubt, that man who had no faith at all in Jesus died with no hope. Though he was only hours away from that death, He still fought against the inevitable. He was about to face judgment for sin. And that judgment will ultimately come at the hands of the one who is crucified next to him. And yet he had no hope and no interest in the message of the one who was hanging there with him. He was as condemned in the spirit as he was there in the flesh. But then you have the second thief, the guy on the other side. The second thief hears the first thief, of course, and he objects to what the first thief has to say and actually defends Jesus, comes to his defense. Listen to that exchange again from a short passage out of Luke, Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You know, that second thief was just as assuredly going to die as the first thief. And as, for that matter, as Jesus was. 
But in the face of that death, the man seeks for a source of hope. He turns to Jesus and in faith, he asks Jesus for mercy. And if you notice, he acknowledges Jesus, his messiahship, his lordship by mentioning the kingdom. He declares Jesus will one day come into his kingdom. And when that happens, this man wanted to be there in that same way when that day came. In a few words, perhaps as few as you possibly could manage, in fact, this man expressed the essence of the gospel. Look at what he said. He said Jesus was the Messiah. Number two, he said he knew Jesus would be resurrected after he died. How else could he say when you come into your kingdom, if not by the assumption that whatever was about to happen was not going to defeat him? Third, he acknowledged that Jesus would be ruling in that kingdom because he called it Jesus' kingdom. And then fourth, he realized that Jesus offers that kingdom to any and all who seek it in faith. And so he sought it in faith. As Paul said in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, did he do that? Absolutely. And believe in your heart that God, look, raised him from the dead. Did he not come to that assumption, to that belief? Absolutely he did. Then Paul finishes, you will be saved. And that's the basis by which Jesus said, you will be in paradise with me. Folks, if only we could be that simple, that direct, that eloquent with the gospel. What's even more remarkable to me than just the mere fact that the guy got it, which is a God-given faith, we know. Nonetheless, the part that really impresses me is that this thief was willing to acknowledge this truth while he stared into Jesus' blood-soaked eyes as Jesus hung hours from death on that cross. How much faith does it take to believe the claims of someone who you know is about to die himself? A claim that this is the one who will save you from hell. That's a faith you don't have apart from a God-given knowledge and insight. A spirit-sourced faith. For otherwise, it is foolishness to consider that to be true. So in the story of Joseph, back to our picture, in the story of Joseph, notice we find two men on either side of Joseph, so to speak. Each has a moment in which they can speak with Joseph and seek an answer for him concerning their future. One learns that he will be restored and that he will have a life that is returned to him in a sense. He will go back to his old life. Furthermore, Joseph says, remember me when you go. But the second man faces a very different outcome. He is set to lose his life. And you notice he has nothing more to say concerning Joseph. And I think the connection is clear. The cupbearer is a picture of the believing thief, while the baker is a picture of the unbelieving thief who had no hope as a result of his encounter with Jesus. A wonderful picture. Let's move into chapter 41. We discover in this chapter that Joseph isn't finished interpreting dreams. In fact, his first experience in interpreting dreams in the jail was merely the prelude. It is what set up the opportunity for him to now have a much different setting, a much different place in which to interpret dreams, and that is in the throne room of Pharaoh. Let's read verses 1 through 8. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile, and lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up from them, 
or came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Well, the Pharaoh of Egypt receives this dream. We know it's from God. It's designed to be unexplainable except by Joseph. And we know the Lord is working in these circumstances, not only in the dreams of the prison, now in the dream of Pharaoh as a means of elevating Joseph, of taking Joseph and bringing him to the place he's always intended to be. Joseph proved himself with the cupbearer in prison. And now as a result, that's going to give him the opportunity ultimately to come now and interpret these dreams of Pharaoh, but not yet. It's taken two years, you notice, for this to even transpire. It's taken two years of time as Joseph continued to languish in the prison. You should notice once again, just as we've learned in past weeks, God's movement in our lives will often take much longer than we expect or than we desire. But in the way God does make us wait at times, that waiting serves a good purpose. The good purpose is it's a period of testing. It's a period of maturing. It brings spiritual benefits to us. And it's typically the case that these benefits could never have come any other way. There is simply no substitute for the way patience grows us. So in his wisdom, the Lord determined that Joseph needed to spend two more years in prison on top of whatever else he's already done. After meeting the cupbearer. But in those two years, God was laying the seeds for his elevation. But those seeds take time. They have to be planted. They have to grow. They have to produce fruit. So it is in this way that God uses our trials for us to then face them with patience and grow through that patience. There's a great verse, as you probably know, out of James's first chapter that captures this and sums it up nicely. James 1, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Pharaoh's dream has two versions. One of cows, one of stock, of grain. Have you noticed a pattern in the book of Genesis Yet, with regard to Joseph, a pattern of twos, that's a pattern that's not just here, but throughout the story of Joseph. Throughout the story of Joseph, you'll see this pattern of recurring pairs. For example, Joseph had two versions of the dream for his family and his parents, didn't he? One that involved wheat, one that involved celestial objects. Same message, two different versions. Remember, he was betrayed twice with his garments, twice. He interpreted two dreams in prison. He was in prison two years before he goes to see Pharaoh. The Pharaoh has two dreams with two different images, cows and stalks of grain. There will be two different periods of seven years in Egypt. Lastly, you're going to see Jacob's family taking two trips into Egypt and appearing before Joseph twice. Well, why is this? We all know, having studied our Bible enough by now, that there are no coincidences. These details do matter. 
They're not there by chance. They're there because God wants us to see and understand something from them. So what is it we're supposed to understand from the way that Joseph's life seems to revolve around pairs? Well, here again, you find a subtle but unmistakable picture of Christ in the life of Joseph. The message is a foreshadowing of two sides or two aspects to Jesus's ministry. The Messiah's role is a twofold role. Jesus is first our perfect sacrifice, paying a price for sin, a price we couldn't pay ourselves. Secondly, the Lord will ultimately triumph over sin and death and come to reign in glory as king of the world. So he has a first coming to save men from sin and a second coming to judge and reign. He is the lamb of God. He is the righteous king. And so the pairs in Joseph's story are there to lead us to understand that the Messiah's ministry is twofold, two part, not simply one. In the case of the dream given to Pharaoh in Egypt, look at some of the symbols, the Nile, cows and grain. The Egyptians associated the Nile with life for good reason. That water made the difference between a hopeless desert and a great oasis. So in the way that the water is featured in the dreams, it's speaking to the life of the nation. Then he has fat cows emerging from the river. Well, that's going to be very significant to Pharaoh. Cows were a symbol of the goddess Isis, who was the fertility goddess of Egypt. So you have the fertility goddess emerging from the source of life, the river god of Egypt. And then you have the stalks of grain. Well, the stalks of grain are a national symbol. Literally, we have the bald eagle. Egypt had grain stalks as their national symbol because they were the grain basket of the entire ancient world. So here you have Pharaoh experiencing dreams with imagery that all speak to the fertility and the strength of this nation. And then in the dream, he watches seven ugly, lean cows come out of the river, which must have been bizarre all by itself. And then they consume the fat ones. The word, by the way, for eat there is akal in Hebrew. It literally means to chew. Sort of a strange sight if you can imagine it happening in a dream. Then the second dream just changes the imagery, but it's a similar message. Parallel with the first, you have fat stalks being eaten by lean stalks and so on. And this is an even stranger metaphor because here the word for eat is changed from chew to swallow. Grains swallowing each other. I don't know about you, but I don't usually remember my dreams very well. I don't know why. It takes usually a pretty special dream for me to even remember it ten minutes after I've woken up. But in Pharaoh's case, these dreams stick in a profound way. So much so that he is disturbed to the point of seeking out somebody in his kingdom who can explain it to him. It's as if life can't go forward for this guy until he gets the answer to the question, what do these dreams mean? That's not unusual in the Bible. In fact, Throughout the Bible, when God gives man a dream, it will often leave this profound and lasting impression on the man, like it does here to Pharaoh, intended not only so that the man would remember it, that's the least of it certainly, but so that they would ponder it, so they would seek answers concerning it. And of course, that's God's purpose in the revelation, is to cause men to seek something, regardless of the form of the dream, for them to come to some understanding and to seek after it. Now, the Lord doesn't reveal himself to men in our flesh for nothing. You know, he has better things to do if you think of it from God's point of view. His purpose, though, is to cause fallen men to seek for him, at least in some capacity, at least for some purpose. Not always for the purpose of salvation, mind you, 
But it is always to some greater glory and good as God is purposing to work. So he is always the one seeking. And notice that in Scripture. Men, according to Romans 3, do not seek for God. We seek. We just don't seek for God. We seek for things of our own making, our own image. But when the time comes to discover the truth about who God is, that seeking process begins with God. God seeks, making revelation of himself known, and then men respond. We cannot seek what we do not know. Nor can we find what we are not seeking. Well, Pharaoh wasn't seeking for God. He certainly wasn't seeking for Joseph. But God gave him a revelation in the form of these dreams with a question behind them. What does this mean? And then, by that revelation, God caused Pharaoh to seek and seek. And when he did, by the Lord's provision in Joseph, he will find his answer sitting in prison as it will turn out next week. And when the Pharaoh finds that answer, the next phase of God's plan for Joseph and for the nation of Israel will begin. Let's go in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the pictures of Christ found in the story of Joseph. I'm reminded, Father, by others who study with me at some time, many times, that when we see these pictures and see these connections, it's a reminder that the whole Bible was written by the Spirit And delivered to us so that we might know the truth of you and your plan. That it does all fit together perfectly. That you have made it fit. And it is such an encouragement to our faith when we see that. To know that the things we read of Joseph in the book of Genesis are directly related to the things we read in the Gospels. And to the things we read in the book of Revelation and to everything in between. I thank you, Father, for your wisdom and for your grace. For the power you have to display your yourself in this way to encourage us through these things to reveal yourself to men for where would we be father without that revelation i thank you that even in a small place like oak hill bible church you could show yourself through your word and for those who gather here regularly father to seek you that we are being rewarded by that diligence with an ever greater understanding of who you are thank you father for that blessing we pray father that as we go out from this place We will be your representative and ambassador this week. We will carry what we know, but more importantly, we will carry who we are in Christ. And we will be light where we go, Father, and be truth to all who seek you. And we ask that you would encourage us by bringing with us more each week as we desire to grow and serve in greater strength. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.